Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from John 19. Since we read the whole passage last week, I'm just going to read verses 31 to 37 this week. Pay close attention to God's gospel. Verse 31, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we meditate again on the heart of the gospel that saves us, give us ears to hear. Give, our, give the eyes of our hearts vision and increase our faith. And as we go from here today, make us doers of your word and not just hearers. We ask for this by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> as we've walked our way through the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, we've observed an irony. The Jews, the, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, were carefully tending to the smallest details of their man-made laws, purity laws, while breaking God's law by crucifying the Lord of glory. The Jews were careful to avoid ritual contamination. You remember, they refused to enter Pilate's headquarters, the praetorium, because it would make them impure during Passover. And yet at the very same time, they were busy securing the death of the true Passover lamb. John is trying to draw out this irony. One commentator put it this way, While taking great care to be ritually pure before the Passover by not entering the praetorium, the Jews have ironically prepared for the arrival of the true Passover by leading Jesus to the praetorium to be put to death. Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on these passages, noted religious scruples may live in a dead conscience. In other words, it's possible for someone to be quite religious, meticulous in keeping the law while hating God. 
Today we'll focus our attention on those seven verses I just read, verses 31 to 37 of John 19, if you want to open your Bibles to that passage. And in these seven verses we see once again the dead consciences of the religiously scrupulous Jews. The Roman custom was to leave the crucified body on the cross just just to let it rot, let the birds devour it. It was part of the the shame and, and the example for those around to see. But in Israel, the Romans typically allowed the Jews to bury their crucified criminals that day in obedience to Deuteronomy 21, which says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Ironically, you see, the the Jewish religious leaders sought to uphold this law. They go to Pilate to try to obey this law, even as they were crucifying the law giver. But the first century Jews are not the only humans in history who have been guilty of paying lip service to God while hating God in their hearts. In fact, there's a tendency, there's a lingering tendency in all of us to do something like this to one extent or another, and we need to be careful. There are many, even, even some, who go to churches most weeks who claim to love God and who call themselves religious, but who have not put their trust in Christ and his blood. The Jews were all, all the more motivated to get the bodies down in this particular moment, to, to get the bodies down from the three crosses because it was Friday, the sixth day of the week, which meant that the Sabbath was coming that evening when the sun went down. If, if the bodies stayed until sundown, they would defile the land And not just defile the land, but defile the land on the Sabbath. And not just defile the land on any Sabbath, but the Sabbath of Passover week. The Saturday of Passover was a high Sabbath. Verse 31 says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day... Preparation day just means Friday, uh, the day that the Jews prepared for the Sabbath. Because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day because it was Passover week, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So for the first time in John's gospel, Jesus is not an active agent. In this scene, we're we're looking at his lifeless body. 
the, the Jews are concerned to bury these three bodies, Jesus and the two sinners on his right and left, before sundown. And once again, the irony we've been talking about is clear. The Jews think the dead body of God's son is a source of defilement at Passover. But in reality, his flesh and blood are the flesh and blood of the true Passover lamb and therefore the source of true purification. So they they think his body is a source of defilement, but because he is the true Passover lamb, he's the source of purification, holiness, cleansing. So when when the legs of the crucified person were broken, uh, the, he would quickly die by suffocation because he, he, he was no longer able to push himself up and get air into his lungs. So, you know, his, if, his, if his feet were nailed to the, to the cross or strapped to the cross, then he could hoist himself up, get more oxygen, and extend his life. Verse 32, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other, who was crucified with him. But, they, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So Pilate evidently granted uh, permission to, to go ahead and do this to the Jews to, to break the legs. The, the other two guys had their legs broken. But when the soldiers came to Jesus, they discovered he was already dead. So there was no, no need to break his legs. And we see again that Jesus is the acting authority over his life all the way to the very end. No one can take his life from him. He will lay it down on his own accord how and when he wants. He chose to die precisely when all things had been completed. When, when salvation, your salvation, mine, had been accomplished. When he had finished everything that his father sent him to do, not a, not a minute before and less than a minute after. So no need to break his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Presumably the spear was thrust into his side to make sure he was dead. The result, though, is what's important, and that's why John records it. The result was a flow of blood and water from the side of Jesus, the new man, the new Adam. So so why does John record this? Why does he give us this detail about the blood and the water? Well, the the, uh, one obvious answer is that it really happened, and he saw it happen, so he's telling us. Um, It's possible that part of the reason is he wanted his readers particularly his original readers who were maybe hearing about these, this heresy going around that Jesus only appeared to, to have a body. Maybe he wanted to let them know, no, he had a real body and he really died. His heart stopped beating. He, he, he did face death all the way. But, but John's interest here is not limited to the historical fact, important though that is. He's also giving us theological perspective, theological truths. The reference to blood evokes the image of sacrifice. And in light of the immediate context, this imagery is supposed to make us 
think of the Passover sacrifice in particular. The, the sacrifice of, of the Passover lamb, which was the immediate context historically and literarily in John's gospel. Jesus is the Passover lamb par excellence. He's the true and final Passover lamb. The fulfillment of every Passover lamb that had been sacrificed during the previous 1,600 years since they came out of Egypt. During the first, the very first Passover, remember the Israelites put blood on the doorposts of their, of their houses, their homes, And this blood was important because what did it do? It saved them from the angel of death. The blood of Jesus, though, is greater. It has been sprinkled on the the doorpost of your heart, as it were. And this blood saves you from the eternal wrath of God to come. It makes you right with God in a way that the Passover lambs of old could not. Hebrews 10, 22 to 24 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Has your heart been sprinkled from the evil conscience, from an evil conscience by the blood of Jesus? And, and by the way, if you read Hebrews 10, the rest of Hebrews 10 in, in context there, that, that sprinkling on your heart, if you're a believer, is the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus, which is greater than all the other all the, the blood that was previously sprinkled on the people and on the various places in the, in the temple. Is Jesus your Passover lamb? Have you entrusted yourself to him? If so, hold fast. Hebrews says, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, for God is faithful. But if not, you're still in danger of that wrath to come, which is greater than the wrath of the angel of death. So if the reference to blood takes takes us to the Passover, takes us back to the Passover sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb in Exodus. What do we do with the water? Well, the reference to water evokes the image of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. John is already connected in more than once the Holy Spirit to the death of Christ and to water. For the the first time was in John 3 in his discussion with Nicodemus. He must be born again from water and the Spirit from above. And we saw last week that the very end of verse 30, which says, He gave up His Spirit, or as the old King James says, He gave up the ghost, is John's way of connecting the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was going to to give in a fuller in a full way at Pentecost connecting that gift of the holy spirit to come to the death of Christ the spirit couldn't come he he couldn't be poured out on God's people until Jesus died but John also connects the holy spirit 
as I already said, to water. John 3, but the most obvious example maybe is John 7. Jesus said in John 7, 38, I quoted this last week, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John goes on to explain in the very next verse, in his words, now this Jesus said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Like the blood then, from Jesus' side, the water coming out of our Savior's rib, his side, is is not merely biological, it's also theological. The blood and water are shot through with biblical symbolism. And these two symbols are not just functioning in isolation. You know, we, we can do a theology of the blood and then a theology of the water over here. No, John wants us to see the functional relationship between the blood and the water which flow out together. The mixture of blood and water flowing from Christ unites in our minds the purifying power of Christ and his blood with the life-giving power of Christ's spirit. It unites the purifying power of Christ's blood with the life-giving power of Christ's spirit. The blood purifies because it's the blood of the perfect sacrifice. The water gives life because it's living water, which is the spirit. The blood that has been sprinkled on your hearts is the blood that flowed from Jesus' side. And the living water that flows out of your heart, John 7, is the water that flowed out of Jesus' side. Let me say that again. The blood that has been sprinkled on your heart, Hebrews 10, is the blood that flowed from Jesus' side. And the water that flows out of your heart, through you and out of your heart, John 7, is the water that flowed out of Jesus' side. The soldier needed proof that Jesus was dead. But John is providing proof that the death of Jesus offers forgiveness and life. The blood and the water give forgiveness and life to the world. In verse 34, some of you may have already made this connection in your mind. I've hinted at it. In verse 34, the the word translated side... The soldier pierced his side, and the blood and water came out. That that word side is the same word used for side or rib in the creation account in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Genesis 2.22 says, And the rib, or the side, that the Lord God had taken from the man... He made into a woman. Same word. John uses the same word. And it's, it's only used outside of John in the New Testament one time. It's not a real common word in the New Testament. The blood and water flowed from Jesus' rib or side. So do you see what's going on here? Jesus is the new man. 
the, the new Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam. And, and here's the point. The bride of the first Adam, Eve, the bride of the first Adam was formed out of that which came from his side while he was asleep on the ground in a garden. In the same way, the bride of the second Adam, the church, the bride of the second Adam has been formed out of that which came from his side while he was dead on a cross in a garden. If you go on and read the rest of John 19 that we read last week, you'll see that this all took place in a garden. Just as Adam was put into a deep sleep, Jesus was put into an even deeper sleep. He actually died. The substance from Adam's side gave birth to Eve. The substance from Christ's side has given birth to the church, the bride of Christ. If you've been born again... You're a member of that bride. And because the blood and water flowing from Jesus' side has given you new birth. That's what makes you born again is that blood and water cleansing you, giving you new life, purifying you, sprinkling your heart. Ed Klink writes, Quote, when, the, when the Roman soldier thrust his spear in the side of Jesus to confirm his death, he was unwittingly declaring to the world that true life had just begun. Possessing eternal life means possessing the purifying blood and the life-giving water of Jesus Christ. Verse 35 says, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. So that you may believe. That's one of the main applications that we should get when we read this account, in particular, John's gospel as a whole, really. But... He, say, he says that at the end of the book, I'm writing this whole book so that you may believe, but he, he says it again here when he's talking about the heart of the gospel, the death of Christ on, a cross, on the cross. When we read this, our faith should grow. That's, that's the point. That's what God wants to accomplish in us, even this morning as we meditate on this word. John's bearing witness to something he saw. He's, he's testifying to something that, that he, he saw with his own eyes. You, re, you may remember uh, from a couple weeks ago, the apostle John, which is Jesus' first cousin, was one of those five family members and, and intimate disciples by the cross during the crucifixion. So once again, I want to point out a, a rich literary structure in John's gospel. It's made manifest here again at the beginning of his gospel in the very first chapter in verses 6 and 7 in in the introduction, prologue. We were told that a man was sent from God whose name was John. 
This man came as a witness, to bear witness, to testify to the light. Why? That all through him might believe. That John was John the Baptist. He bore witness that we might believe, that you might believe. Now at the end of the gospel, in chapter 19, verse 35, we are told about a witness-bearing man, another John, the Apostle John, the author of this book. And he who has seen has testified, he has borne witness. And his testimony, his witness, same word, is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. A lot of same language, same words being used in, in one, chapter 1 and chapter 19 here. The first John, John the Baptist, declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1.29. The second John, the disciple of Jesus, sees with his own eyes the fulfillment of John's, John the Baptist's prophecy. And he testifies to the truth of it. And the goal of both Johns, the first John and the last John, is that you might believe, that you might see with the eyes of your heart, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, that you might see the same truth that they saw. John the Baptist saw the Passover lamb who would take away the world's sin. John the apostle saw the Passover lamb as he was taking away the world's sins on the cross. They testified to what they saw, and John wrote it down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20, 31. John is keen on proving that the cross, the cross of Christ, fulfilled all, all of the Old Testament scriptures. And in our final two verses, he connects the death of Jesus once again to the Old Testament in an explicit way. Look, look with me at verses 36 and 37. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Here John gives two scripture references. The first one is negative, and the second one is positive. The, the, the first one highlights that the soldiers did not do something. They did not break his legs, his bones. And the second one highlights that Jesus was pierced as promised of old. The first one in verse 36 says, not one of his bones shall be broken. What's interesting about this quotation, if you will, loose quotation, allusion, paraphrase, is that there is no Old Testament scripture that perfectly matches it. Okay, John words it so that it doesn't match up perfectly with any one text. It actually echoes three Old Testament passages. And that's, and that's what he's wanting to do. The Old Testament passage that, that matches John's words most closely 
in terms of, of the verbiage, is Psalm 34:20, which says, He keeps all his bones. He preserves all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That's Psalm 34. And that's, that's part of what's being fulfilled here. That's the, the psalm about the righteous man. So it's identifying Jesus as that righteous man, the fulfillment, the, the righteous man. But John has something greater, deeper in mind when he, when he and some of you, in fact, uh, some of your Bibles, if you have footnotes that, that tell you what passage or scripture is being quoted, some of your footnotes will acknowledge what I'm about to say. He doesn't just take us back to a psalm about a righteous man. More importantly, even, he takes us back to the Passover lamb in the books of Moses. The, in the institution of, of the Passover, God explicitly commanded the Hebrews in two different places, Exodus and Numbers, not to break the bones of the Passover lamb. Did you know that? Do you remember that in your reading? Exodus 12, 46. It shall be eaten, the, the lamb, in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Numbers nine twelve reiterates this command. They shall leave none of the lamb until the morning, nor break any of its bones. Now, if you think about it, it, it seems a little, that seems like a strange detail, maybe. We may not get the, the, the reason why God wanted us to know that. Uh, why, is it, why is it important not to break any of the lamb's bones after it was dead? I mean, these, are, these are about after it's been sacrificed and it's being eaten already. Uh, you know, it make, make more sense maybe to us if, if, if he's saying you know, it, it needs to be a lamb whose, whose bones aren't broken before you sacrifice it to make it acceptable to God. I like what James Boyce says about this. He writes, This seemingly pointless detail in the Passover ritual, the detail about not breaking the lamb's bones, and this seemingly pointless detail in the death of Jesus, the detail about his, his legs, legs not being broken, these two seemingly pointless details combine in God's providence to identify Jesus as the Passover lamb through whom we have a spiritual deliverance, end quote. The Jews knew the significance of the Passover. The, the first Passover was when God delivered his people out of Egypt, brought them out of Egypt with, with many miraculous Deeds, the, the, um, you know, ten plagues on Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, mighty acts galore. It, it was the main event in Israel's history. And on the original Passover night, God sent the tenth plague. And that tenth plague was the worst one. It was a great and unbearable judgment on Egypt, a judgment in which the firstborn of every household was killed. God sent his angel to slay all the firstborn throughout Egypt. The only households 
in Egypt that were spared were the ones with blood on their doorframe. And not just any blood. It had to be the blood of a lamb. A lamb without spot or blemish. A lamb whose bones would never be broken. If, if such a spotless lamb was slain, and if its blood was put on the, the lentils, on the, in the doorposts, in the lentil, then when the angel of death came to that house, he would see the blood on the doorframe, and he would pass over. Everyone inside would be spared. The original Passover was by far the the most important historical redemptive event in Jewish history. Passover was when God redeemed his people, made them his own, made them his child, his son, as Israel is called in Exodus 4. And the Jews were celebrating this historic deliverance. They were celebrating Passover when Jesus was slain. That's what was going on. So what John is indicating is that Jesus is the greater Passover lamb. He perfectly and completely fulfills everything the Passover signifies. He addresses all of the the problems, the sin that Passover could not address, that none of the sacrifices in the Old Testament could deal with. He's the perfect sacrifice and the only real sacrifice for sins. And this is important because we're sinners. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. All of us deserve the, the judgment of the angel of death. We deserve eternal judgment. And the angels of God's judgment are coming. God's wrath, Paul says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity is a real thing. It's already being revealed in Jesus, and it will be revealed in a, in a culminating way one day. It's coming down the pike. But you can and will escape the wrath to come if the blood of the Lamb has been sprinkled on your heart. Jesus died in your place if you are trusting in Him. If you are claiming Him as your Passover Lamb. His blood purifies your sins. His water gives you life. Because of His death, on Judgment Day, the angels of death will pass over all who have put their trust in him. The second scripture reference in verse 37 says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. This is obviously a quotation from Zechariah 12, verse 10, which says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. There's a lot we could say about this. Revelation 1 quotes this, alludes to it, has a a lot of application. But actually for John's purposes, that particular verse is not the main verse that he's wanting us to think about. It's, It's part of what he wants us to think about. 
but, but a, a lot of Bible students stop there, and, and they don't go further than Zechariah 12.10, which contains John's quote, of course, they shall look on him whom they pierce. But remember, I've said this before, I'll probably say it again because it's important. When you're, when you're reading the New Testament and a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament verse or a phrase, alludes to, to a specific sentence or verse in the Old Testament, he expects you to go back and read all around that verse, not just that one verse. So, so when a New Testament author quotes from the Old Testament, you should look at it like a footnote. It, it's telling you what, what page, or maybe even pages, to go back and read. It, it, it's, the, it's the New Testament writer's way of telling you to go back and read the whole passage to look at the greater context. That's just, it's, it's just regularly true. And if we do that here, if we read the whole paragraph, you know, just five or six verses in, in the context, if we read the whole paragraph that actually begins with Zechariah 12, 10, he's taking us to the beginning of the paragraph, then we see what John is doing. The end of, of that paragraph is Zechariah 13, 1, which says this. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And what's that fountain going to do? To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So at the beginning of the paragraph, Zechariah twelve ten, he talks about pouring out on his people. At the end, it's a fountain. There's a fountain flowing with something that cleanses from sin and uncleanness. An open fountain to cleanse God's people. And, and that verse is at least as important, if not more important, in John's mind here. That's why he takes us back to this paragraph in Zechariah. The one they pierced has become the fountain of life, the promised fountain of life that cleanses from sin and uncleanness. The pierced side of Jesus is the open fountain. And out of that fountain flow the blood and the water that purify and save. The English poet William Cooper wrote a great hymn called There Is a Fountain filled with blood. And probably some of you, like me, uh, grew up in, in churches that, that sing this song regularly. And in this hymn, Cooper makes the connection between the fountain in Zechariah 13 and the blood, in particular, that flowed from the side of Jesus in John 19. Just, just listen as I read the four, the four verses. <clears throat> there is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, as vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. 
Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Are you in that number? If so, there's, there's no greater blessing. Bless the man whose sins are forgiven. Are you a member of the ransomed, blood-bought church of God whose sins are paid for? If so, rejoice. Has the blood of Christ been sprinkled on your heart's doorpost? Are you trusting in Jesus? Do you believe that he died for your sins and rose on the third day? Do you know what it means to be saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone? If so, rejoice because you, as Hebrews 10 says, you can Draw near to God with a true heart, a true heart that Jesus has given you, in full assurance of faith, with your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Your conscience is clean. Continue to hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, and consider how to stir up other believers, the ones sitting next to you, behind you, and in front of you, to love and good works. If not, of course, you're still, uh, you're, if you're still trying to deal with your sin problem, if you're still, still trying to deal with your guilt and shame some other way, if, if the burden of your sins is still weighing heavy, crushing you, then plunge yourself beneath the fountain filled with the blood of Jesus and lose all your guilty stains. You can't atone for any of your sins in any other way. No amount of of hurting yourself, causing pain to yourself, cursing yourself, punishing yourself emotionally, uh, despising yourself, cutting yourself, condemning yourself, hating yourself, none of that can even begin to atone for one small sin. And no amount of good works can, can accomplish favor with God, can earn favor with God. Nothing you do can gain acceptance with God. Some of us Christians need to hear this, not just unbelievers. We need to hear this, too. Because our tendency is to think of our position with God, before God, as something that depends on on what we do, works that we do, and we think we can damage it by things we do, or maybe even make it better, make his love stronger by things that we do. Nor can you suppress the pain, the discomfort of your guilt with entertainment or substances or girlfriends, or boyfriends, or success, or the acceptance of fellow men. The only solution to your guilt, the only solution to your separation from God, the only solution to your sin is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, help us to believe what we've read and what we've heard. Our faith is small sometimes. We believe, but help our unbelief. And accomplish this in us through your word and by the power of your spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.